Father in heaven, thank you again so much for today and so much for Jesus. And we pray that as we look at this passage uh, and this theme over this weekend, that you would amaze us, freshly renew our hearts as we hear of the wonderful things that you've done for us to call us as your children so that we can call you Father. Father, help us to see that this is the highest privilege of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name and for our joy. Amen. We're all prone to take things for granted. I know that this is one of the common habits, bad habits that I have. I'm prone to taking my family, my health, my, and various other things in my life for granted. I value these good things too lightly. Uh, Steph's parents and her brother's family are currently in Japan, uh, enjoying quite the holiday. They've been sending us lots of travel photos and, of course, lots of food photos. It seems like anyone who knows me, if they go on holidays, they just send me food photos. Now, one of the more interesting photos that they recently sent was of mangoes and oranges uh, from a high-end department store. Now, you're probably thinking, mangoes and oranges, those are not things that you normally send as photos to your friends and family at home. But these mangoes cost, wait for it, $23 each. And the oranges cost $18 each. $23 for a mango, $18 for an orange. Well, it can be easy to take little things like the price of fruit for granted. But then we could take bigger things for granted as well. This week we saw in the news the sad images from Paris, France, as the Notre Dame Cathedral caught on fire. And for a while there, it was everywhere on the news and on my Facebook feed, crowds of onlookers were caught watching the blaze, shocked and some in despair. A beautiful historical icon of their city was being destroyed before their very eyes. Perhaps it was something that was taken for granted and now it was being taken away and they realized how precious it was to them. So we're all prone to take things for granted. Big or small, we've had We we all have bad habit, a bad habit of valuing important things too lightly. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then the idea that you are a child of God is probably not new. I suspect, however, that we've probably begun to take this idea for granted. Now, here's a long quote from J.R. Packer. It's a short quote up on the screen. He's one of the leading theologians of our time. Here is his quote. Our first point about adoption is that it is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. This may cause raising of eyebrows, for justification is the gift of God on which since Luther evangelicals have laid the greatest stress. And we are accustomed to say, almost without thinking, that free justification is God's supreme blessing to us sinners. Nonetheless, careful thought will show the truth that the, of the statement we have just made. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. So according to one of the leading theologians of our time, the idea of God adopting Christians as his children is the highest privilege of the gospel. That seems like a very big claim to make. Is he right? If J.R. Packer is right, then that makes Good Friday even more good. 
and it makes it even better. And let's dive into our passage and, and work out if it's true. Uh, now, by way of background, we, you can see on the passage there on the outline, we're going to focus in on verses 1 to 7 of chapter 4. And by way of brief, brief background, the letter of Galatians was written by Paul to a church which was beginning to struggle. They were mostly Gentiles, non-Jews, but it seems that some false teachers with Jewish influence were coming into the church and convincing these new Christians, these Gentile Christians, that in order to be really a part of God's people, you needed to keep some of the Old Testament laws and you also needed to get circumcised. Now, the letter contains one major argument, that any addition to the gospel destroys the gospel. Now, by the end of chapter 3 and the start of chapter 4, his message is clear. If you try to add good works to the gospel, then you will end up destroying the very thing that can save you. We are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Nothing needs to be added to this. And so then at the start of chapter 4, Paul now gives the great benefit of the gospel. Those who trust in Jesus are adopted as his sons and daughters. So he begins in verses 1 and 2 with a very common understanding of the coming of age of a child. Read with me. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So he's picking up on a common understanding of the coming of age of a child. Now in Australia, it was relatively common. I don't know if it still is relatively common, but it was relatively common for a teenager to throw a massive party at the age of 21. 21 used to be the legal age of drinking and voting in Australia. And while voting is important, for most young adults, being able to legally drink was more important. Now today, that age has been lowered to the age of 18. But the big party was, there to, uh, uh, was a big event to mark the coming of age of a young adult. No longer were they seen as children or teenagers, but now they were old enough to be called adults. Now, Paul picks up on the common first century understanding of a child as well. Basically, a child in their time did not receive full benefits of adulthood and their estate until they were 25 or until the father said so. And once their father made a legal declaration... Then and only then could the child receive the full benefits of being an heir. Now notice the linking words there at the beginning of verse 3. In the same way. Paul is saying that just like how a Roman child had to wait for their father to change their status, we also are waiting for a legal change of status. Our original status, as Paul says in verse 3, is enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, what are these elementary principles? If you, in your Bibles, actually jump down to chapter 4, verse 10, he expands on it, observing days, months, seasons, and years. Uh, this might be referring to the observation of Jewish, the Jewish calendar of festivals and important dates, or it could also be referring to pagan festivals and idolatries. Either way, it's a very religious thing to do to be very observant, to do these things, believing that the more you do them, or if you do them well, that God will be pleased with you. And when you think about it, that's a very dangerous place to be. There are those in our world who are not very religious at all, and they know that they are far away from God. The non-religious person knows they are far away from God. The religious person 
does not. They think that in keeping all of their religion, they are drawing closer to God, but they are no closer than those who are non-religious. Now, in these three verses, there is a warning for all of us. If we have not trusted Jesus, if we are not adopted sons by faith, then we are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, I assume here that most of us here are not openly worshipping idols made out of gold or wood carved by human hands. But there are dangers of religious good works keeping that can still be seen among us even here. And in these verses, Paul gives us a very neat little test to work out if we have fallen into the trap. This is the little test. Idolatry and date-keeping seem to go hand in hand. Let me explain. First, what is an idol? An idol is anything that we have elevated above God in terms of importance, of worship, of, or anything that we have put above God to give us significance or security. Usually we take something good and then we make it into the ultimate for our source of identity or our security in life. Now here's an example that we commonly point to here at our church because we're Asian. So let's just say it, success in school. Right? So if success in school is important, Maya's shaking her head. You must be very proud. (laughs) So let's say then, let's just say hypothetically, if success in school is really important to you, so so important that good grades make you feel secure in life, then if you don't get good grades at school, then you feel like you're a failure in life. And so grades are your idol. And if grades are your idol, then then the dates you follow religiously are your exam timetables, your assessment due dates. You will forsake things in order to keep these religious dates. So you'll skip Bible study and church and fellowship because these things are more important to you than anything else. Now here's another example. Money is often a common idol in our world. Financial security. Now if that is your idol, then the religious dates you observe are the financial year. Tax time, tax return dates, the quarterly or the monthly reports from your stock investments. Our world may not be bowing down to physical statues, but idolatry is just as common today as it was back in Paul's day. Every idol demands allegiance and every idol has a calendar to keep. Paul says that this sort of life is slavery. You think you're free. You think you're free, but you're not. You're locked in for life. And in Romans 8, which we'll look at on Sunday... Paul says that this life leads to death. Not just death at the end of your life, but a a spiritual deadness. Deadness towards God and a deadness in life as you trudge along, serving a master that wants nothing more from you than your very soul. That is our natural status before God has done anything in our lives. And the good news comes in verses 4 and 5. Read with me. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, in God's perfect time, Jesus was sent into this world to redeem us. He came to give his life to pay our ransom. Our sin has put us in terrible debt. One we owe with our lives And Jesus has come to completely wipe that clean. 
And Jesus hasn't just come to wipe our slate clean and then let us go on our merry way. See that important linking clause there at the end of verse 5? Jesus has done all this so that we might receive adoption as sons. We are brought into the family. Remember the prodigal son. He rejected his father. He treated him as dead. He took his share of the inheritance. He wasted it away. He returned home hoping to become a slave of his father, but instead he is hugged, he is kissed by his father and given a ring, the ring, a sign of membership back into the family. That's what happens to us. Our debt is too big to be repaid, so Jesus pays it all. We are redeemed, and Jesus has done all of that so that we will become God's children. A big change of legal status has occurred, and that change is dramatic. You've gone from being an outsider, looking in on all the good promises of God, and now you're an insider, enjoying the promises and blessings of God. Now, that change that has happened is not only a big legal status change, but it's also a change that we experience. In verses 6 to 7, Paul goes on to show that this legal change not only affects our status before God, but we profoundly experience it in our hearts. Have a look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You notice the, in verse 6, the grammar of this verse. It's, it's all past tense, but it has a, a sense of fullness about it. You are sons. God has sent. Paul is saying, we are already sons. Sonship is not something we are aiming for. It is not something that will happen in the future. It is something that we already have here and now. Notice the parallel between verses 4 and 6. In verse 4, God sent forth His Son. In verse 6, God has sent the Spirit. In verse 4, God sent His Son to secure our legal status. And in verse 6, God has sent the Spirit to give us the experience of being His sons. The Son is sent to secure objective reality, which we desperately need. And the Spirit is sent to give us a radical, subjective experience of that reality. God isn't just in the business of changing our status before Him. He wants you to know and to feel that emotionally and personally. And we do that by crying, Abba, Father. Abba. The word Abba is a family word. It's not quite Daddy, as I know some people pray. But it's a personal word, an affectionate word. Dearest Father. It's knowing God personally and intimately. It is phenomenal that Jesus, when he comes into the Gospels, he begins to call God his Father, his Abba. And then he gives us the right to do that. Remember, you are Gentiles, you are not Jews. But even if you were a Jew and you read through the Old Testament, you would never call your God your personal father. He was the father of the nation. That's a very kind of vague idea. 
Now he is your personal father. And we can cry out to God as our father. Our cry here means to cry loudly. This is a deep and a profound passion, a feeling. This means in our prayers, we can be free to be warm and passionate with our loving Heavenly Father. We're not locked into formal or mechanical prayers. One of the ways I can tell if, if someone is genuinely converted is how they pray. One of the great joys I've had in ministering to the teens of our church over the last 10 years has been hearing them pray over the years, listening to them pray, Dear God, when I know that they aren't sure about their faith. But then when it clicks and I get to see that happen and they begin to trust and they know all that Jesus has done for them and then they start to pray, Heavenly Father. Only true and genuine Christians can pray this way. Only true and genuine Christians can call God their Father. The other week, Steph had a women's group meeting in our home. It was my day off, so I was cooking dinner. I'd gone out to the shops, the ladies had come over, and Serene, where's Serene? Over there? Oh, she's back there. Uh, Zander, she brought Xander and Xanthia along, and Xander was running around doing his you know, normal kid thing. But when I got home with the groceries, he was super excited. He joined me in the kitchen. We started preparing dinner together. I put on a rubber glove. It was way too big for his hand. And so he had to kind of hold the glove with one hand and, and have the other, his fingers in the, in the holes there. And we were kind of rubbing spices into some chicken I was getting ready. And that was nice. But at the end of the day, he called me Uncle Steve. And he had to go home. Only three people in this world call me Daddy. Only three children in this world belong in my family. True and genuine Christians have a special access to God as their father. And the Spirit works in them naturally to call out and to reach out to their father. When my kids need me, they cry out, Daddy. And they come running and they throw their arms up because they know that if they throw their arms up, I will pick them up. Right? It's, it's genetically encoded into my DNA as a father. I see arms up with a little kid, I will pick them up. Right? But I didn't need to teach them how to do that. It's not like you know, I had to teach Jaden, I had to coach Jaden on how to put his arms up to, towards me. You know, he comes to me, Daddy, Daddy, and I said, no, Jaden, no, 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 a little higher. <laughs> right? Just like that, come on, a little bit more, and a little bit more emotion, come on, right? He has an inbuilt spirit that leads him to reach out to his father. Christians have a father who delights in them. My children are a delight to me. Ellie, who is nearly three, she's super cute right now. And she, she's got this little speech thing where she changes her G's to a D. So I've, heard, I've heard it's natural, she'll grow out of it, but... At the moment, Steph and I are not in a hurry to correct her because uh, she says every night, dude night, and then she goes to our Google Home Hub, hey doodle, and then she wonders why Google doesn't respond. Uh, my daughter Janessa is five and a half, and she started school this year in, in prep, and she's grown in leaps and bounds. She loves to write and to practice her writing and to show it off with delight. And she's the perfect Asian because we haven't been pushing her and encouraging her to do that. She actually will sit down in the afternoons and just practice her writing for an hour. Brilliant. 
And her artwork is beautiful, and it's posted up all over the house. The other day I woke up, right next to my bed, there's an artwork from Janessa that she'd posted up. I completely did not notice that in the, in the evening. Jaden just turned seven. I'm so proud of him. He loves to read, just like his daddy. He's doing so well in school, and I, you know, one of our favorite moments is over dinner, and he's just so full of energy and excited to share the stories of his day. And he's fun and energetic, and, and there are a few things that I love more than to spend time wrestling with him on the carpet. My children are my delight, and God's children are his delight. You see, in verse 7, Paul says, You are no longer slaves, but you are sons. And we are sons in the same way that the Father looks at his son. You picture the way, can you picture the way that the Father looks at Jesus? He sees his son in complete perfection. The Father look, must look upon his son with godly and perfect and sinless pride. He looks at Jesus with utter delight. Everything his son does and says pleases him and delights him. And now he looks at you in the same way. And he takes delight in the same way. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine God's beaming and utter delight as he looks at you? He sees you just the way he sees his son. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there is nothing you can do to make him love you less. He looks at you and loves you with the same delight as he loves his son. Now, when he says sons, he's, you know, Paul is not being sexist. He's not excluding women. Uh, in the first century, sons were the heirs. They were the ones who received the inheritance, not their sisters. Now, in the first century, women had no property rights. So what Paul is saying here is radical for both men and women who were outsiders to God's covenant. We Gentiles, men and women, are now sons and heirs through Jesus. To say that we are now all sons is radically inclusive. But it's not universal. Not everyone is a son. This sort of deep relationship, this sonship, comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Printed on the bulletin there is is chapter 3, verse 26. Have a look at that. Paul says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. We are only sons when we have faith in the Son. We are sons if we have faith in the Son. It is through faith that God adopts us. We, We must trust that Jesus has died for us to redeem us and call us into his family. Now, J.R. Packer at the start said adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. Do you see now why he says that? Uh, He goes on to say this. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. In justification, God declares of penitent believers that they are not and never will be liable to the death that their sins deserve because Jesus Christ, their substitute, taste the death in their place on the cross. This is the wonderful good news of Good Friday. Jesus has died so that you will never have to taste the penalty that you deserve. But contrast this now with adoption. 
Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. One of the great achievements of the cross is our adoption as sons. Gentiles, now sons and daughters of God. And if you have trusted Jesus, you can know, not only know this as a fact, but you can also profoundly experience it in your hearts today. Before we move on, I want to talk to you here. If you're here today, and if you know that you're not a Christian, or if you're not sure if you're a Christian, maybe you're even here sitting today, sitting on the fence, having enjoyed church life, but not having really committed to Jesus. I want to ask you, don't you want this? Don't you want for God to look at you with delight? to know as a fact that you are his child and to experience the joy of that? Don't you want to jump off that treadmill of serving a master who doesn't actually love you or actually fulfill? Of serving a master who demands your life and gives you nothing in return? Because there is a father who does love you and who wants what's best for you and is offering you a chance to join his family. So would you turn from the idols you're serving and turn to Jesus and trust him? Two quick things to end here for today for those who are Christians. First, remember your status. Remember you are not trying to become a son. You are a son. You are a son by faith alone in Jesus alone. You're not earning your right to become a son. You're a son by faith. You are a son by grace. And as you remember these things, remember the things that we've covered. Rejoice from your heart. As a, son, uh, as a son, God delights in you, and you can delight in God as your personal heavenly father. Now, I know that that is easier said than done. I know that a lot of us have difficulty feeling this, and I suspect it's because a lot of us are not very close to our fathers. At our, at our last men's ministry gathering, Grunt, I did an informal survey of the men in attendance. I asked them how many of them had a close friendship, a close relationship with their father. Not just that you respect them and love them, but that you would say in your heart of hearts that you were close. And across the board, I had blank stares, and that said it all. If you had an okay father, one who wasn't abusive, I think that most of us could say that we did love our fathers, we respected their authority and their position, but we weren't overly close to them. Your heavenly father is not like that at all. And if you grew up with a dad who was abusive physically and emotionally, or who was absent, who just wasn't even there, then let the doctrine of God's adoption begin to heal your heart. Earthly fatherhood is meant to be a reflection of heavenly fatherhood. 
Now in Jesus Christ, you have a Father in heaven who loves you and delights in you. That truth might take a lifetime to appreciate. And we will have an eternity to enjoy it. God in his kindness has allowed a foretaste of that eternity. So will you see God now as your father and adoption as the highest privilege that we have in the gospel? Let me pray. Abba, Father, how we love your name, how we are so thankful for your son, how we are so thankful that you are our Father and you now delight in us. Help us to know in fact and to know in truth that we are your children and help us to know and to feel the weight of this truth in our hearts today. Help us to see the wondrous privilege it is that we have to call you Father. And may we keep trusting you forever and ever. Help us to do this for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus, our brother's name. Amen.